This episode of Scandal mentions suicidal themes and drug abuse and may be triggering for some listeners. Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. Blonde bombshell who won hearts the world over. But the story of Marilyn Monroe's life extends far beyond glamour, wealth, and fame to something much darker. Welcome to Scandal from Shameless Podcast, the stories of the biggest celebrity controversies revisited. Hello, Zara McDonald. Hello, Michelle Andrews. We are back for part two. And my goodness, we have so much to get through today. We do indeed. Let's recap what we covered in last week's episode because, again, we covered a lot. We covered 27 years of Marilyn Monroe's life. We left off in 1953. Now, by this point in time, Marilyn Monroe was one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. She was going from strength to strength. She had come from nothing. And when we say nothing, we mean nothing. She grew up in foster homes and orphanages and was constantly shipped around between different family members. Exactly. At this point where we left off, she was seeing her long-term boyfriend, the former baseball player, Joe DiMaggio. She also had a seven-year contract with 20th Century Fox Studios. She was getting bigger and bigger roles. She was starting to really become a household name. But little did she know, Mish, the next two years were going to be even bigger. Yeah, exactly right. Before we dive right back into where we left off the story of Marilyn's life. We have to give a hat tip to two books that were seminal and really important in bringing this episode together. So our researcher, Justine Landers-Hanley, really adored reading Marilyn Monroe, The Biography by Donald Spotto. He interviewed over 150 people for that book and that book is regarded as one of the best authorities on Marilyn's life, particularly her childhood. We also want to give a hat tip to another biography called Marilyn Marilyn Monroe, The Private Life of a Public Icon by Charles Casillo. Yeah, if you want a little bit more depth and insight into the life of Marilyn Monroe, those two books are incredible and we will put links to them in the show notes. But for now, Mish, we are rewinding all the way back to 1953. Let's do it. So 1953, Michelle was a big year for Marilyn's career. She'd turned 27. She'd starred in three huge films that had cemented her status as a major sex symbol and Hollywood icon. Yeah, one of those films was Niagara. That hit the screens in February where she played a cheating wife who was plotting with her lover to kill her husband. (laughs) Incredible plots. (laughs) It's a really good plot. The director, Henry Hathaway, described her as, and I quote, the best natural actress I ever directed. He also said, though, that Marilyn was always, and I quote, being trampled on by bums. I don't think anyone ever treated her on her own level. To most men, she was something that they were a little bit ashamed of, even Joe DiMaggio. What an interesting quote. I think what's also interesting about going back so far with these scandal episodes and one thing we always comment on to each other is how much language changes over time Mm. and the way that people describe things then is not quite how you describe them now. Being trampled on by bums is a really interesting turn of phrase. Mm. Now, 
That was the last time under Fox that Marilyn actually played a sort of dark, sultry femme fatale. From there, 20th Century Fox had Marilyn playing that dumb blonde role, and I have that in inverted commas. It was when they really started to push her out and say, this is who you're going to be known as now. Yeah, and that was certainly the case in her next two films, the musical Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and the film How to Marry a Millionaire. Both of those came out in 1953. Now, if you've ever seen photos of Marilyn Monroe in films, you may know her character in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. She plays a gold digger who loves diamonds and in one scene wears a hot pink ball gown with matching long gloves. Now, bizarrely, Clips from this are going viral on TikTok right now. Everyone is watching little snippets of this movie. How incredible is that? I mean, at this point in her career, if we're going to give a baseline level of what she was playing in terms of characters, she was the dumb blonde, the boy crazy, morally questionable kind of character. And that's the kind of role that Fox were constantly putting her up for. Kind of significantly as well, this was also when tensions really started to emerge between Marilyn and 20th Century Fox. And I don't think it's a huge coincidence that they're pushing her into these roles at the same time that this tension arises. If you remember from the last episode, it was super common back then for stars to sign these long-term acting contracts with studios. They were paid a weekly wage. The studio was allowed to cast them in whatever they wanted. Back in 1950, Marilyn signed a seven-year contract with Fox, which would see her being paid, as we said, a weekly salary that increased a little bit each year. Seven years is a long time to be locked into something, isn't it? Yeah, and it's also a long time to then end up with a pay disparity between you and your colleagues. And that's exactly what happened. Marilyn found herself being seriously underpaid compared to her co-stars. For example, in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, the other woman lead, Jane Russell, was paid $150,000 for the film. But according to the contract that Marilyn had signed years prior, she was only getting between $1,250 and $1,500 a week. So if we add that up across the duration of filming, Marilyn reportedly earned about $18,000 compared to the $150,000 that Russell earned. Yeah, just incredibly huge pay disparity there. Drama aside, Marilyn was reportedly incredibly hardworking on set. She knew that Gentlemen Prefer Blondes was her opportunity to become America's favourite blonde actress. I mean, she was well on her way. Her co-star Jane Russell said that she never saw anyone work harder in her life. Sometimes she was so engrossed she'd forget to eat lunch. Yeah, when this movie premiered in July 1953, audiences lapped it up. They absolutely adored it, as did the press. The LA Examiner wrote, and there's Marilyn Monroe. Sounds, boys, what a personality that one is. Sounds boys. Sounds boys. This is what I mean, how language changes. The film was a turning point in Marilyn's stardom. As the author Charles Casillo wrote in his biography that we mentioned before, after Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Marilyn Monroe was no longer a popular movie actress who captured the hearts of her generation. She became an eternal, iconic image, a beloved symbol. She was of this earth but also out in the stratosphere, her name inscribed in the annals of history. Marilyn became well aware of her place in popular culture as the blonde. It caused her, in turns, extreme delight or deep anxiety. She was now a star. She had dreamed it. She had worked hard for it. Now she intended to keep it. Yeah, and she wasn't just iconic for that kind of blonde bombshell look. She was also really known as a total sex symbol. That same year, she appeared on the very first edition of Playboy. Fame came with a price, though. We mentioned in the last episode that Marilyn struggled with anxiety throughout her life, and that was really only getting worse as her fame and attention soared. Marilyn was beginning to make a habit of showing up late to set. We know she was hardworking when she was on set, but actually getting to set became a little bit of an issue. She was also scared about giving a bad performance and would stay in her dressing room trying to make sure she looked perfect. It didn't help as well that across her life, particularly at this time, paparazzi were not very kind to Marilyn Monroe. Yes, her photos sold, but to get those photos, photographers would scream out sexist remarks to 
her about her breasts and her body to get a reaction. Yeah, and it would get a reaction out of you, absolutely. Now, while she was happy to be America's favourite blonde, Marilyn also, at this point in her career, wanted to play diverse and challenging characters. The executive at Fox, on the other hand, wanted her to stick to playing a funny, sort of stupid girl and continually cast her as such. And so her displeasure with the company hit fever pitch when they told her she'd be starring opposite Frank Sinatra in a movie musical called The Girl in the Pink Tights. Yeah, Marilyn was not a fan of this casting choice and really resented the studio for treating her like a commodity without taking her feelings into consideration. She was rightfully angry that she was also going to be paid far less than Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra was going to be receiving $5,000 a week from Fox, whereas she would be paid $1,500 a week. The studio on top of this also refused to give her a script before production started. So they clearly knew it was not a role that she was going to yeah, like. Exactly. It's like, oh, we really you love the role, but we're not going to let you see it until you're actually in it. Marilyn protested. Again, she stopped attending meetings. She stopped answering the phone. She stopped responding to telegrams about the movie. So the studio threatened to replace her with another actress. Now, when they finally caved and sent through the script, she discovered that she would be playing a primary school teacher who becomes a burlesque queen to put her boyfriend through medical school. Now, she just hated the idea. She apparently sent the script back to Fox with the word trash written on the front page. (laughs) Straight to the point. I love her. Now, filming for this movie was set to begin in January 1954, but Marilyn didn't turn up to set. The head of Fox Studios was totally enraged and suspended her without pay until she returned to fulfil her contractual obligations. This was such massive news, it made headlines in the New York Times. Of this controversy, Marilyn later explained that, and I quote, I was put into these movies without being consulted at all, against my wishes. Is that fair? If I keep on with parts like the ones Fox has been giving me, the public will soon tire of me. You can totally understand this, that the roles that an actress performs in or the roles that an actress accepts definitely end up defining or influencing her public image and her reputation. And this is a time in history where actresses like Marilyn Monroe had very little power over that. Absolutely. I mean, I would love to say that humans are smart enough to separate the actress from the character, but we're just not. Mm. Like, we know how much we at a personal level struggle with that sometimes to separate it out. I can't imagine how it was for women in the public eye back then too who had such, as you say, little power over the characters that they were playing. Now, in the midst of all of this drama, Marilyn was taking a huge step in her relationship with long-term boyfriend Joe DiMaggio. At the start of 1954, Joe actually asked Marilyn to marry him. He was 39, she was 27, and they married. They had a simple ceremony at San Francisco City Hall on January 14, 1954. Now, Marilyn, as one of the network's biggest stars, had always promised the head of Fox's publicity team that if she was ever going to get married, she would tell them as such first. As a bit of a peace offering, in the whole saga of will she, won't she star in this movie, she told Fox about the wedding. Now, while that potentially softened the tensions between them for a little while, it ended up being a bit of a mistake because when she and Joe arrived at the town hall for what they wanted to be a very simple and small-scale wedding, they discovered the hall was jammed with 500 reporters, photographers and fans. What a nightmare, honestly. So Joe gave Marilyn a platinum eternity band set with 35 baguette cut diamonds. I love that you have no idea what that is. I have no idea (laughs) what that is. She wore a black button down dress with a white collar. She wore matching black heels. I think that, I mean, that's what we think, but the, Mm. the photos are in black and white. So we're really just sort of guessing. We're throwing shit at a wall. And hoping that it sticks. The ceremony lasted all of three minutes. Yeah. Joe was scheduled to leave in January to do some consulting work in Japan. So Marilyn joined him and they called that work trip their honeymoon. How wedding culture has changed. A three-minute ceremony, (laughs) a work trip that is a honeymoon. Like it doesn't look like how it used to. I can tell you right now, if Mitchell Rees turned around to me and said, our honeymoon's going to be a work trip, I would be divorcing him (laughs) quick start. Look how chill these two are. Now, they did think the honeymoon would be a quiet affair, but when they arrived at Japan's international airport, 
they discovered police were struggling to hold back the 10,000 frantic fans who had showed up to welcome them. Marilyn ended up having to secretly crawl through the baggage hatchway to a waiting limo. When they arrived at the hotel, staff closed the lobby doors, but fans were hurtling themselves at the doors, shattering the glass. Who wants that level of fame? No one. And it's also like, you think back in 1950s, they were this globally famous. Yeah, it's it's really crazy to consider. In the middle of this sort of so-called honeymoon, Marilyn took off to South Korea to perform for the troops, which was something that Joe reportedly resented. Now, according to the biographer Donald Spotto, Joe had hoped that Marilyn would slow down in her career and settle down with him to create a family once they had married. The honeymoon, though, proved that she was never going to stop performing and her fame and her notoriety would follow her everywhere. I don't know why men think this. Like, this is the person that you've married. They don't change because they've married you. I was just thinking the exact same thing. It's something we've repeatedly come up against in these scandal recordings where we've revisited the 50s, 60s, 70s, and men continually believed that when they got married, the dynamic would totally change overnight. The only thing I can think to give the benefit of the doubt a little bit is I wonder if Marilyn and women like Marilyn couldn't be honest. They couldn't at that time in their life say, you know what, I never see myself having children. I never see myself being a homemaker because that reality back then meant they would be devoid of love. Like maybe no man would want to settle down with them. Yeah, maybe that's very true. And it was by the time they returned to America on February 24th, so just over a month after they got married, that Donald Spotto says their marriage was already deeply troubled. Not the foot you want to get off on when you just get newly married. Now, Fox dropped plans to make that terrible film Girl in the Pink Tights Altogether, That was the film that Marilyn was really banging her head against a wall about. Instead, they struck a deal with Marilyn Monroe. Instead, she would perform in the movie musical There's No Business Like Show Business. And in return, they would give her a leading role in the film version of a Broadway play called The Seven Year Itch. To sweeten this entire deal, they would also throw in a bonus of $100,000. So whether or not you've seen The Seven Year Itch, you probably know one of its most iconic scenes. It's the moment where Marilyn stands above a New York grate wearing a white halter neck dress. People are nodding as I say this. <laughs> and the steam kind of scandalously blows up her skirt. That scene was shot in September 1954 and Marilyn was 28. Now, while many people adore that scene, Marilyn's husband, Joe, was not one of them. He thought it was exhibitionist. He was frustrated at his wife's inability to let go of her career for him. Yeah, after that scene was shot, reportedly Joe and Marilyn had a violent fight at their hotel room. Now, later on in the year, after returning to California in October, Marilyn, with her lawyer standing by her side, announced to the press that she was filing for divorce against Joe on the grounds of mental cruelty. They had only been married for 10 months. Yeah, it wasn't just this one moment that ended their relationship too. According to Spotto, Joe spent his days watching television, chain smoking and waiting for Marilyn to come home from the studio. He was reportedly obsessive and controlling And word was that that hotel altercation wasn't an isolated incident. There were reports that Joe had been physically violent at times in their marriage. Talking about the end of their marriage, Marilyn later said, I didn't want to give up my career and that's what Joe wanted me to do most of all. He wanted me to be the beautiful ex-actress just like he was the great former ball player. We were to ride into some sunset together. But I wasn't ready for that kind of journey yet. I wasn't even 30 for heaven's sake. For heaven's sake. After the break, Zara, we are going to hear about the third love of Marilyn Monroe's life. He was a man by the name of Arthur Miller. But first, a word from today's sponsor. All right, Zara, so we're in 1954. This was also the year that Marilyn Monroe decided to break up with Fox Studios. So her marriage ends and her contract with Fox Studios is severed. This was no small feat. 20th Century Fox was huge and they were hard to take on, but Marilyn did it anyway. After wrapping up filming on the seven-year itch, 
Marilyn left Fox and Hollywood. She moved to New York and there, with the help of her photographer friend, Milton Green, founded her own production company. It was called Marilyn Monroe Productions and this made her the first woman since Mary Pickford to start her own production house. I love this part of the story. Like Mm. it's really remarkable. Now, naturally, Fox was furious. They fed the press bad comments about her like this one. She's on her way out, a year off the screen and she'll be washed up. We can find a dozen like her. Yikes. Big yikes. On top of the negative press, they also hit her with multiple lawsuits for breaching her contract. But Marilyn, meanwhile, was living it up in New York. (laughs) Couldn't care less. Now, she danced with writer Truman Capote. She attended poetry readings. She made friends with playwrights. She was kind of a a more glowed-up version of herself, I guess. Yeah, she kind of shedded a lot of the materialism and decided to really hone in on her craft. She started taking acting classes with renowned teacher Lee Strasberg. At Lee's encouragement, she also started seeing a psychiatrist and revisiting a lot of her life and her past trauma. She also joined the Actors Studio, which was one of the most prestigious acting workshops in the world. Now, according to a fellow member, the actor's studio was, and I quote, more important than getting a job in Hollywood, even more important than getting good reviews on Broadway. When Munro and people like that were invited in without the rigorous auditions we youngsters had to go through, we resented that quite quickly. Now, outside of her acting and outside of doing these workshops and really trying to hone her craft... Marilyn also happened to fall madly and deeply in love with famous writer and playwright Arthur Miller. Yeah, so if you've heard the name Arthur Miller, I'm going to hazard a guess that perhaps you studied some Arthur Miller at school (laughs) or maybe you just like to read some Arthur Miller now leisurely. But Arthur Miller is largely regarded as one of America's greatest playwrights. By 1955, he had really cemented this reputation. He was a huge deal and he was an incredibly highbrow deal at that, like Mm. This sort of play scene is a little bit different to the Hollywood scene and Marilyn was now kind of mixing in those circles. Interestingly, and to add a little layer of complexity to the story, he was also under the watch of the FBI at this time because he was thought to be a secret communist. Reds under the beds era. Yes, exactly. In 1947, the Cold War had, of course, begun between the US and the USSR and there was rising paranoia in America about communism. By the 1950s, where we are in this story, we're in 1955, American leaders were repeating telling the public that they need to be fearful of communist influence and they need to look for communists everywhere in their life, but particularly in school teachers, college professors, artists and journalists. People, especially left-leaning artists, were being put on trial by the American government and investigated for their supposed crimes. Now, Arthur thought all of this was bullshit and kind of like the Salem witch trials, so he wrote the incredibly famous play, The Crucible in 1951 as commentary of what he saw going on in the US at the time. Now, the American government (laughs) did not love this. And so the FBI started compiling a record on Arthur himself. Now, given Marilyn Monroe was his lover, she was brought into that fold. Yeah, it was an incredibly tense time in history. So Marilyn had actually met Arthur back in 1951, the year that he wrote The Crucible. He was a friend of her boyfriend at the time. According to The Guardian, they had a brief affair. Scandal. I know, a big scandal. (laughs) But then other people say that while they secretly fell for each other, then nothing came of it. All we know was that Marilyn at the time that they met was seeing someone else and Arthur was married. Mm. However, by 1955, four years later, Arthur was turning 40, Marilyn was 29, and even though Arthur was still married and even though Marilyn was apparently still sleeping with her ex, Joe DiMaggio, it didn't take long for this friendship to develop into a full-blown affair. Yeah, and Arthur was just as in love with Marilyn as she was in love with him. He wrote of this time... It was wonderful to be around her. She was simply overwhelming. She had so much promise. It seemed to me that she could really be a great kind of phenomenon, a terrified artist. She was endlessly
endlessly fascinating, full of original observations, and there wasn't a conventional bone in her body. Now, on June 1, 1955, the seven-year itch premiered and Marilyn was once again the most popular person in America. Itch was the summer's hottest film, grossing over $4.5 million. By the end of that year... Fox came back with their tail between their legs. They were willing to offer 29-year-old Marilyn a new and improved contract. Exactly. So as we know, Marilyn's across the country in New York and they want to drag her back to Hollywood. They said that she would get the bonus that they'd promised her for the seven-year itch, which was the $100,000 per upcoming film. She'd also get another $500 weekly during production for maid services Mm. and other expenses. And they also said she would only have to appear in four Fox films over the next seven years and she could choose the subject, the director and the cinematographer. She could also work on other movies and TV shows with different production companies and they would pay her via her production company. So in terms of contracts... This is a pretty good one. I mean, going from $1,500 a week to $100,000 per film is a big pay jump. And that kind of flexibility that she always craved. As Time magazine wrote the following January, this is persuasive evidence that Marilyn Monroe is a shrewd businesswoman. Yeah, this brings us to 1956 and she seemed to have a lot more confidence by this year according to publications at the time. As Donald Spotto quoted, Marilyn herself reportedly said, I'm beginning to understand myself now. I can face myself more, you might say. I've spent most of my life running away from myself, but after all, I'm a mixture of simplicity and complexes. Around this time, a lot was happening in Marilyn Monroe's personal life. So on June 11, Arthur Miller was finally granted a divorce from his first wife and he and Marilyn were getting pretty serious. Shortly after his divorce went through, he was actually summoned to appear in Washington before a committee to answer questions about his Communist Party affiliations. I imagine this would have been quite stressful. Super stressful. During one hearing, he asked if the government could return his passport to him so he could travel to England that summer where a production of his play was being staged and, he added, to be with the woman who will then be my wife. The press went nuts. I'm going nuts now and this happened like six years ago. (laughs) Arthur continued, I will marry Marilyn Monroe before July 13 when she is scheduled to go to London to make a picture. When she goes to London, she will go as Mrs. Miller. The public was very shocked. So was Marilyn. (laughs) So while this duo had spoken about getting married someday, Arthur had not proposed to her yet. So bringing this up during a governmental investigation into communist affiliations was not the most romantic way to ask someone to be his wife. Luckily for Arthur Miller, Marilyn loved him enough to overlook this and she said yes. At 7.30pm on Friday, June 29, a judge pronounced them husband and wife in... Zara, a four-minute town hall ceremony. Well, at least it's a minute longer than her last (laughs) marriage ceremony. That Sunday, friends and relatives gathered in the home of Arthur's agent in New York for a traditional Jewish ceremony. But Marilyn, interestingly, was actually having cold feet. According to Donald Spotto's biography, Marilyn's friends discovered her upstairs looking teary and saying she wasn't sure she wanted to get married. But the guests were downstairs, she resolved, so the show must go on. As one friend cheekily toasted at the reception later that night, I hope your children have Arthur's looks and Marilyn's brains. (laughs) (laughs) But much like her relationship to Joe, Marilyn and Arthur's marriage seemed doomed from the beginning, truthfully. One day early in their relationship, Marilyn actually found Arthur's notebook open on the dining table and glanced at the page. She read that her husband was having second thoughts about their marriage. So Donald Spotto wrote of this, of what he could pull together about what Arthur Miller wrote. Donald Spotto said he thought she was an unpredictable fall-on child woman he pitied, but that he feared his own creative life would be threatened by her relentless emotional demands. Not exactly a glowing picture of your wife. No, it's just such like a creative wanker thing to say, though, (laughs) that being around emotional women will affect your own craft. A creative wanker thing to say. Say. Now, in a diary entry of her own, Marilyn wrote that she had always been deeply terrified of being, and I quote, someone's wife, since I know from life one cannot love another ever, really. 
Now, she did stay with Arthur, but this moment haunted the rest of their marriage. As she later said, I can be a monster. When we were first married, Arthur saw me as beautiful and innocent among the Hollywood wolves that I tried to be like that. I almost became his student in life and literature the way I'm Lee Strasberg's student for acting. But when the monster showed, Arthur couldn't believe it. I disappointed him when that happened. But I thought he knew and loved all of me. I wasn't sweet all through. He should love the monster too. Now, I don't know about you, Zara, but it sounds to me like they have this very sweet courtship period where maybe Arthur Miller saw Marilyn for her looks and her sweetness beyond being an actual complex person. Once they were actually together, the trauma that Marilyn had experienced across her life was always going to bubble up to the surface at some point. And when it did bubble up, Arthur wasn't prepared to handle it. Yeah, exactly. He didn't kind of want all of her. He just wanted maybe the, the best version, you or the version of Marilyn that the world knew. Another tragedy reportedly happened while filming that movie. According to Spotto's biography, she fell pregnant with her first child and actually miscarried. She actually continued to have fertility problems in the years to come, most likely due to endometriosis. In 1957, she also had an ectopic pregnancy and had a second miscarriage in 1958. Yeah, so we find ourselves... A couple of years on, in the year of 1960, Marilyn was turning 34 years old. Arthur was turning 25. She had appeared in a comedy called Some Like It Hot. It was a huge success. Variety magazine wrote in a review at the time that Marilyn was, and I quote, a comedian with that combination of sex appeal and timing that just can't be beat. She won a Golden Globe for that performance. She also went on to star in a second film, Let's Make Love. She agreed to do that on the basis of her Fox contract. But personally, things were not going well. Marilyn had quietly entered into an affair with her co-star Yves Montand in April 1960. One night she had a cold and Yves went to her house to help her. He reportedly recalled of that time, I went to kiss her goodnight, but suddenly it was a wild kiss, a fire, a hurricane I couldn't stop. This affair is pretty underreported. There's not a heap around about it, but it did end after a few months. Yeah, and I think it speaks to maybe a real unsettledness to where she was in her life at this point. In 1960, as you can imagine, things were not looking good for Arthur and Marilyn. If she's having an affair, I imagine things aren't perfect. Arthur had written a screenplay for Marilyn to star in, actually, and it was called The Misfits. In it, she played a recently divorced, wounded young woman who becomes friends with three aging cowboys and falls in love with a much older man. A few things going on there. <laughs> it was Arthur's gift for Marilyn, something he hoped could restore their marriage. But as Spotto says, the making of misfits would be an undiluted horror. Arthur had actually started writing this script back in 1957 when he was still in love with Marilyn. By 1960, the film was like a public exposure of their bitter marriage. Marilyn was basically playing herself and the story drew on the real rise and fall of their own relationship. Oh, to be a fly on the wall when they're doing rehearsals for this. Production began in July 1960. In her first scene, Marilyn literally had to read pieces of dialogue that Arthur had lifted from her divorce proceedings to Joe DiMaggio. So she was horrified to read lines that had been snuck in there that obviously documented her real-life heartbreak. Yeah, never marry an artist. Never marry an artist. Marilyn later wrote of that time, Arthur was supposed to be writing this for me, but he says it's his movie. I don't even think he wanted me in it. I guess it's all over between us. We have to stay with each other because it would be bad for the film if we split up now. Yeah, meanwhile around this time, Marilyn had actually been seeing a new psychiatrist and at one point in 1960, Marilyn was seeing the psychiatrist every single day, sometimes for sessions that lasted for five hours. He referred her to a doctor who prescribed her sleeping pills for her insomnia and the dosage really only increased as she struggled her way through filming The Misfits. She was also really suffering physically. She reportedly suffered from pain in her abdomen and frequent indigestion. It's it's kind of that sense of when things really start falling apart and stress starts overwhelming your body. Not only does your mind go, but your body does go too. Yeah, for sure. 
Arthur, on the other hand, was moving on from his marriage to Marilyn on the set of that film that was supposed to bring them back together, was supposed to be his gift to his wife to help them re-spark that flame. He actually met and fell in love with the set photographer. So on November 11, 1960, Marilyn and Arthur announced their separation to the press. Their divorce was finalised in January 1961, the day of President John F. Kennedy's inauguration. They chose that day on purpose so they could get the divorce through the courts quietly while the press had their eyes elsewhere. Publicly, there was no bitterness from Marilyn's end. She said, Mr. Miller is a wonderful man and a great writer, but it didn't work out that we should have been husband and wife. But everybody I've ever loved, I still love a little. Come 1961, after this divorce has settled, Marilyn's mental health was spiralling a little bit. Her last two movies, Let's Make Love and The Misfits, were pretty big commercial flops. The latter, as we know, had served as a breaking point from her marriage to Arthur. She was alone. And by February, the now 34-year-old Marilyn Monroe was voluntarily admitted to a psychiatric ward on recommendation. She thought she was going in for rest for being overworked on the set of The Misfits. But once she signed the papers and admitted herself, she was escorted to a padded room and locked in a psych ward. Yeah, now this was a pretty torturous experience for Marilyn. According to Vanity Fair, at one point, she resorted to breaking off a piece of window glass and threatening to harm herself if they did not let her go. A medical intern apparently asked Marilyn why she thought she was there. The intern asked her, why are you so unhappy? happy, to which Marilyn reportedly replied, I've been paying the best doctors a fortune to find out why, and you're asking me. I think it's important to remember psychiatric medicine at this point in time is worlds away from the way we treat mental illness now. Yeah, it was not a great time to be treating anyone Mm. for mental illness, and it is pretty remarkable when you consider how far we have come Joe DiMaggio actually re-enters the story again at this point, her former husband, her second husband, actually. He helped her get into a private room at a nicer mental health hospital where she stayed for just over three weeks. He visited her every single day and by the end of March, she was spending time with him in Florida and come April, she was flying back to LA for her career. Yeah, fast forward again, we're at the end of 1961. At this point in the story, Marilyn is 35 and she is attending a dinner party at actor Peter Lawford's house. Who else was at this party? None other than his brother-in-law, President JFK. Now, the time has come in Marilyn's story to finally discuss one of the most salacious rumours about her, and that is that she had an affair with one of the most notorious US presidents of all time, John F. Kennedy. Yes. So according to Donald Spotto, all that can be known for sure about Marilyn and JFK is they met more than three times between October 1961 and August 1962, and that after one of those meetings, Marilyn told a friend that she slept with the president. They didn't appear, though, to have some long-running romance. I'm sorry to break some hearts with people (laughs) thinking that they had, like, this full-blown affair. It really only seems like they caught up a handful of times. We really only know that perhaps they slept together once, maybe. The fourth time they actually met was in May 1962 at the famous Democratic Party birthday fundraiser for JFK at Madison Square Garden. She inched across that stage in an incredibly tight, figure-hugging, nude-coloured dress covered in beads that I'm sure we can all recall now that was designed to almost make her look a bit naked. It almost feels like to me, you might completely disagree with this, this dress that Marilyn Monroe wore for JFK's birthday fundraiser is the old school original version of what Kim Kardashian wore to the Met Gala with that dripping wet naked dress. Now, Marilyn famously sang a breathy rendition of Happy Birthday, Mr. President, that went down in history as one of the sexiest renditions (laughs) of a birthday song ever. I would say this is one of the most iconic celebrity moments, full stop. I was going to laugh when you said it goes down as the sexiest rendition because, like, (laughs) when is that song ever sung particularly sexily? Now, so 
iconic was this moment in history? Decades later, that skin-tight dress would be bought for $4.8 million at auction. Now, as we know with so many celebrity stories, the image that we were getting from Marilyn, the glamour of her life, was really at odds with what was going on in her mind and in her private life. There were signs that her mental health continued to decline in 1962, which was the final year of her life. One example is her appearance actually at the 1962 Golden Globes. There she was actually presented with the Henrietta Award for World Film Favourite. Her friend Susan Strasberg observed that she was drunk, barely in control. Her voice slurred and she wore a dress so tight she could hardly move. According to Spoto's biography, she had received several injections in the days leading up to the event containing dangerous barbiturates and to help her sleep, chloral hydrate. Now, to me, that sounds all very sciencey, but mm. stuff that you wouldn't prescribe today, right? No, this is some background on those drugs. Barbiturates are a group of drugs in the class known as sedative hypnotics. It generally describes sleep-inducing and anxiety-decreasing effects, but they can be extremely dangerous because it's very difficult to predict the correct dosage. Even a slight overdose can put someone into a coma or unfortunately kill them. They're also incredibly addictive and you can go through withdrawals if you are taking them for a little bit and then try to wean yourself off them. They were an incredibly popular form of treatment for psychiatric illness in the 50s and 60s. But very soon after that, by the 1970s, they were very rarely used. They went through a really rapid decline, basically because we have safer drugs now. We don't need to take risks with barbiturates anymore. Yeah. So throughout the year of 1962, Marilyn's personal doctor was prescribing her these barbiturates for her insomnia and her anxiety. As one pathologist said, it was irresponsible to provide this sort of thing in the amounts Marilyn Monroe received them even in 1962. These were known to be toxic drugs requiring careful monitoring. This was not 1940 when there were far less knowledge about this kind of medication. Mm. I find that quote quite interesting that, yes, we're saying this was the 60s. They didn't know nearly as much as we know now. But you also have pathologists on the record saying they knew enough to not be doing this. They should have known better. With the information at hand, they should have known and they should have done better. Despite that, Marilyn's psychiatrist was apparently simultaneously providing her with heavier doses of sleeping pills as well. Donald Spotto says it was only later that Marilyn's doctor and psychiatrist started to try to coordinate all the medication they were giving her. Up until that point, there was no real communication about how much she was ingesting. That is wild to me. That is so wild to me that you've got a doctor and a psychiatrist both prescribing medication but having no idea what the other is giving her. Not speaking to each other. Yeah. Now, in 1962, Marilyn is still working. She is working on her next project with Fox Studios. It is a film called Something's Got to Give. But Marilyn was actually coming under fire at this point for how she was handling herself on set. She was always late. I know we've said that before, but it was getting worse and worse. She was so sick and struggling with a sinus infection, which also forced the studio to delay shoots. As Spotto writes, terrified of appearing before the camera, Marilyn delayed, malingered and over-rehearsed. Frightened of not sleeping sufficiently, she frequently took too many pills. No one bothered to monitor her intake and so she was groggy and confused for several early morning hours. Yeah, Marilyn at this stage in her life was completely exhausted. She was really struggling deeply with insomnia. She was physically pushing herself to her absolute limit and her mental health was kind of nowhere. She was doing all this therapy with her psychiatrist, but Donald Spotto argues that that psychiatrist was not helpful at all. They were actually quite possessive and controlling of Marilyn. Reportedly, Marilyn would meet for sessions at her psychiatrist's house and would stay over when she was unwell and was also introduced to her psychiatrist's friends and family. At one point, the psychiatrist went so far as to convince Fox Studios to hire him as Marilyn's counsellor on set. It really does sound like he tried to stick tentacles in every crevice of Marilyn Monroe's life. Now, the studio said that the delays they had to take with production cost them $2 million. So badly was Marilyn Monroe performing, they fired her in June 1962 and sued her for half a million dollars. Yeah, just insane stuff. But Marilyn was determined at this point 
because this was also public, to remake her image and get her job back. She appeared on the cover of magazines like Life. She did her first photo shoot for Vogue. She negotiated with the studios to be hired back onto the film. She was like desperately trying to crawl herself back. And according to various biographies of Marilyn, she was also quietly rekindling her relationship with Joe DiMaggio and was planning to remarry him. Yeah, which is what makes the news that on August 5, 1962, that Marilyn Monroe was found dead in her home so much more heart-wrenching. Marilyn's housekeeper was staying overnight at Marilyn's place and woke up at 3am to check on Marilyn. She noticed a light coming from Marilyn's bedroom and when she didn't get a response by knocking at the door, she grew really concerned. She called Marilyn's psychiatrist who eventually broke into the bedroom. There they found the 36-year-old star had died. Yeah, the following morning the world woke up to the headline, Marilyn Monroe kills self. Her death was front page news across the US, across Europe. And according to one biographer, it is said that the suicide rate in Los Angeles doubled the month after she died. The circulation rate of most newspapers expanded that month. The Chicago Tribune reported that he'd received hundreds of phone calls from members of the public requesting information about her death. It is definitely stories like this that make you realise how important guidelines for reporting on suicide have been for our entire community and society because, as we know, as journalists, there are really specific ways that we are told to report on suicide and stats like this about the the rise in rate of suicides after Marilyn Monroe's Mm. death is really tragic. We would never use those kind of headlines today, particularly in Australia. And if you are struggling after hearing that information, please call Lifeline on 11 13 14. The LA Times reported on August 6th that, and I quote, Marilyn Monroe, a troubled beauty who failed to find happiness as Hollywood's brightest star, was discovered dead in her Brentwood home of an apparent overdose of sleeping pills on Sunday. When Marilyn was discovered heartbreakingly, she was actually found clutching a telephone receiver in her hand. According to the paper, she had called her psychiatrist at around 5.15pm the day before. He had apparently told her to take a drive and try to relax. Only an empty medicine bottle was found beside her bed. It had originally contained 50 Nembutal tablets, which were sleeping tablets, that had been prescribed only two to three days earlier. So Marilyn was supposed to be taking one tablet per night. By my estimation, she would have been taking upwards of 20 pills a day. Yeah. On August 17, the Los Angeles coroner ruled Marilyn's death most likely a suicide. The cause of death was an overdose of those things called barbiturates that we mentioned before. She had apparently also taken a large dose of chloral hydrate, commonly known as knockout drops. Marilyn's funeral took place on August 8, 1962 and was organised in part by Joe DiMaggio. It was held at Westwood Village Memorial Park Cemetery and was only attended by her closest friends and colleagues. Her acting mentor that we keep mentioning, Lee Strasberg, delivered her eulogy. According to the New York Times, Lee said in that eulogy, I am so sorry. I know you would not want us to mourn, but grief is human and words must be spoken. He went on to speak of Marilyn's achievements as an actress and as a person. He said, in her own lifetime, Marilyn created a myth of what a poor girl from a deprived background could attain. For the entire world, she became a symbol of the eternal feminine. But I have no words to describe the myth and the legend. I did not know this Marilyn Monroe. We gathered here today knew only Marilyn, a warm human being, impulsive, and shy, sensitive and in fear of rejection, yet ever avid for life and reaching out for fulfilment. What a beautifully worded eulogy. Yeah, just, just gorgeous. Among the songs played at her funeral was Over the Rainbow from The Wizard of Oz. At the LA funeral, Joe DiMaggio was inconsolable and reportedly leant over her casket and kissed her, whispering, I love you, my darling, I love you. For two decades, Joe DiMaggio apparently had flowers delivered to Marilyn Monroe's grave several times a week. On the other hand, Arthur Miller actually didn't go to her funeral. That is, of course, her third husband. However, in an unpublished handwritten essay that actually emerged after he died, he explained that decision by saying, 
Instead of jetting from New York to the funeral to get my picture taken, I decided to stay home and let the public mourners finish the mockery. Not that everyone there will be false, but enough. Most of them there destroyed her, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Over the world, people grieved Marilyn's death. Director Joshua Logan said she was one of the most unappreciated people in the world. The New York Times wrote, in Hollywood, Clark Gable's widow went to mass and prayed for the dead actress. In Italy, Sophia Loren broke into tears. In London, Sir Laurence Olivier said she was the complete victim of ballyhoo and sensation. And the poet Jean Coteau said in France, Marilyn Monroe's tragic death should serve as a terrible lesson to all those whose chief occupation consists of spying on and tormenting film stars. Some of these reporters even spied on her from helicopters hovering over her house. That is scandalous. So interesting that this was a conversation happening in 1960 because it feels very reminiscent, that kind of dogged pursuit of female celebrities. Feels a little reminiscent of the way Princess Diana's death was spoken about. I was just about to say the same thing. This feels like a conversation that we've had time and time and time again. It feels very much like the conversation that people are trying to have around Meghan Markle as well and that there is blood on the hands of people that pursue these female celebrities so doggedly and so without conscience almost. Mm. I think when it comes to Marilyn Monroe's legacy, one thing that has been really wonderful to look back on when we've been doing these couple of episodes is she was really good at her craft. I think what would be very easy for us to do is to reduce her to that dumb blonde role that she was consistently put up for by Fox Studios. But everything you read, both from critics and both from people that worked with her, is that she was so much more than that and craved to be so much more than that. Well, imagine being so street smart and so savvy that you are one of the first women to set up a film production company. Imagine being so good at your job that the studio who tried to slam you in the press and tried to destroy you comes crawling back within the space of a year to say, we'll basically give you whatever you want. So important are you, so loved are you, so great are you at your job. I mean, obviously it's saddening to hear about the trauma and the loneliness that Marilyn lived with for much of her life, but what a life to live where in 36 years she became such an icon that people are still obsessed with her and adore her 60 years later. Well, it just is remarkable to me about how much life, both good and bad, can exist in just 36 years Mm. and how she could become so famous in such a relatively short period of time. It is a really remarkable legacy and I think for someone like me and perhaps like you at 27, I really didn't know much about Marilyn beyond maybe that iconic happy birthday song, that iconic white dress moment. And truthfully, that was kind of it. Mm. So it has been really, really, really good to go back and unpack more of who she was and with huge help by those two biographies that we mentioned before. So if people do want more detail, definitely go and read them because there is a million more layers to Marilyn Monroe, I imagine, than what we can fit into two episodes. This is the kind of series that makes us more informed, I think, and knowledgeable about the celebrity world in general. I think I feel smarter for having learned about Marilyn Monroe's life and I hope everyone listening feels the exact same. She packed a lot in. Yeah, that is all we've got time for today, guys. As always, we are on Instagram at Shameless Podcast. We will have some of these very iconic images and moments on our feed for you to check out. But in the meantime, we will be back in your ears on Thursday for a wrap in the week that was in pop culture. And as always, thank you, Justine Landis-Hanley, for researching this one. We are so, so grateful for all your work. And it was a true privilege to go back in time. A true privilege. Thanks so much, guys. Bye. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If 
that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.